You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at InforumSF.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum in the Commonwealth Club's new educational initiative, Creating Citizens. I'm Dr. Allison Briscoe-Smith, Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the Wright Institute. Today, I'm in conversation with several experts whose research, advocacy, and teaching focus is on how race and social inequality affect children, families, and schools. First, we're excited to have Dr. Sean Ginwright. He's a professor of Africana Studies at San Francisco State University and founder of the Flourish Agenda, a community-based nonprofit organization committed to Black youth wellness. We also have with us Dr. Natalie Keholani Bauer. She is an assistant professor of race, gender, and sexuality studies at Mills College and the co-director of the Elementary Ethnic Studies Project, a multi-year research project funded by the Spencer Foundation to help Bay Area teachers implement ethnic studies curriculum in early childhood and elementary school. And also we have with us Dr. Kyla Johnson-Tramell, who is Oakland Unified School District's superintendent, and she has spent most of her 22-year career within this district. So we're here today to explore the many complexities of inequality in our educational system, and that those inequalities have been writ large and perhaps brought more into focus in the context of our current pandemic. We're gonna talk today about how we can work towards solutions and building more racially just and anti-racist curriculum to support teaching and learning in this virtual setting and also beyond. So if you would like to ask a question, please go ahead and send it to the chat or the comment section. And we're gonna try to get to as many of them as possible toward the end of this program. So with that introduction, Let's get started. So welcome, everyone. Um, the first question that we're really going to focus on is this kind of big, broad question, which is, what is anti-racist? And what does an anti-racist classroom actually look like in the context of distance learning? So perhaps we can start with you, Dr. Tramiel, um and Kyla. Can we start with you in terms of your um, perspective about what does an anti-racist classroom even look like nowadays? Thank you, and thanks to all who are joining in for this important discussion. Um, one I'd like to say, um, I don't consider myself an expert um, because we're not there yet, but, but just simply a leader who's um, open to, to learning in terms of everything that it takes to transform a system. Um, and so uh, having an anti-racist classroom really is connected to having an anti-racist system which um, in our system, we don't have yet, I would argue probably in most systems. And so like that is the continual journey. And I would say a lot of the foundation of that is really um, this disposition of how you are creating, maintaining and nurturing genuine and authentic relationships. Um, and I would say particularly in the pandemic, the need to really see kids and families individually, which can't happen without really understanding relationships. And we use that word all the time. And I think sometimes in education, we assume just because people come into education that the, and love children, that they automatically have those skills and the knowledge and the dispositions to actually develop the kind of relationships to both open spaces to really know what's going on with students and families 
um, particularly when there's conflict, that's when those relationship skills become paramount. Um, and I think that that is a discipline we're, we're seeing, whether we're talking about restorative justice, whether we're talking about anti-racist training, just like you learn how to teach reading, just like you learn how to teach math, we have to invest in making sure people understand how to hold relationships, um, particularly with students and families who may have a lived experience different from your own. Um, with the pandemic, I think my biggest worry um, around in terms of being an anti-racist classroom is this notion of seeing everything through a deficit lens um, and not really seeing the lived experience of students, which again comes back to without that relationship, particularly in a virtual setting where you can't see and touch and the body language, all those things that really help to have a thoughtful and fruitful and productive dialogue um, to support learning and to support parents feeling a, uh, a part of the process of learning um, becomes even more challenging and actually requires an even higher level of skill of the teacher, of the folks in the community. So I'll just stop there just for others to get into the conversations. But I think that relationship and those skills to develop that, particularly in times of conflict, is an important foundation. So you're talking about this foundational piece of kind of relationships in the context of defining what an anti-racist classroom could even mean. Natalie, what do you think about what an anti-racist classroom could mean right now? Um, yeah, thank you. You know, I so I feel like all of these questions, I, I, I experience them from many, many perspectives, right? So um, as a former classroom teacher, as a current parent to little ones, um, as a college professor, and so, um, you know, when Kyla is talking about relationships, the first thing that came to my mind is that I would really love for us to have that same understanding at the university level. You know, um, I think that there's a very, um, very different dynamic in the way that we see students when they come to college, you know, and, and for some of them, they're only a couple months older than they were right in high school. Um, and so an anti-racist college classroom requires we know our students because it requires that we then um, acknowledge that every one of them is experiencing this pandemic very differently. And in the US, that's always gonna be filtered through race and class and gender, right? And whether or not you, you have disabilities or you're a parent or all of these things, but we can't, we can't serve our students properly if we don't actually know who they are. And I'm very fortunate at Mills, we have a very small college and small classes and we have, um, you know, support systems that encourage us to know students well. And um, that allows us to do things like, you know, change policies, right? So y'all remember late policies in college, right? Late policies, attendance policies, all these punitive policies. And, um, you know, our admin has really pushed us to rethink those or to not have those, right? So to understand that um, equity, even at the college level means that we're going to see students where they're coming from and we're going to still hold all of them and, and carry all of them to meeting the same, um, you know, the same learning goals. The, the other thing I almost <laughs> forgot what I was going to say was that it, to your first question is that I think for us to think about anti-racism in schools is that we actually have to come to a better understanding of racism is. Um, and I think that's a big problem, right? Because, um, I think a lot of folks think they can point to racism when they see it. And oftentimes it looks, it looks like, um, you know, like a Klan rally or, or a Trump march, or the, the, there's this sort of this visual that th people think like this is racism. Um, and so then they don't understand it as structural. 
And they certainly don't understand it as something that they might be participating in. And so in schools, that's often been my experience, right, is that um, in order to really make change in schools and to have an anti-racist focus, um, the folks running the schools and the folks in the schools need to acknowledge that, you know, we benefit from racism. We benefit from white supremacy and we reproduce it in schools because our schools were born from those systems. So, you know, it has it has it's a lot. It's going to it's it's right. Understanding structures, being willing to take down those structures, um, being willing to work and understand this as um, a project that doesn't have an end. So I'm hearing this kind of combination of seeing kind of relationships as central to what we have to do in terms of constructing anti-racist classrooms and spaces, but also building up on, we also need to know what racist and racism is. Sean, I want to turn to you and think about how are you defining and thinking about what an anti-racist classroom even means right now in this moment? Yeah, thank you for this, this important discussion. And, you know, we're, we're, are sitting as a society right now um, between trauma and transformation. Um, our young people um, um, who are on Zoom, uh, the teachers, parents, and families are all trying to navigate this sort of um, racial wilderness we are in. And the reason that I call it racial wilderness is because there's so much uncertainty right now. How does a teacher um, on Zoom uh, address issues, uh, a, a white supremacist comment from her student? Um, how does a teacher or a principal uh, create um, a strategies to support their teachers with conversations about race when race right now is so, so um, preeminent in our, in our thinking? Um, how does a, a, a teacher have conversations about the gross forms of racial inequality that the COVID virus has ripped open. And th there's so much uncertainty right now. And so I think that this conversation about creating an anti-racist classroom situates itself. And also how do we create anti-racist schools and how do we create anti-racist school districts? Um, it is impossible to think about transforming and trying to create an anti-racist classroom without trying to think about the conditions in a school that actually facilitate an anti-racist school and as well as an anti-racist district. And so when I talk about anti-racism, um, anti-racism is, is, is really an active stance, right? It's sort of juxtaposed to not, not racist or not being racist, which is a passive stance around racism. And so an anti-racist is an active, ongoing, uh, agentive stance to dismantle white supremacist notions and white supremacist practices that create misery and suffering for, for people of color and, and in schools for, for young people. And so an anti-racist classroom means that we use curriculum that centers people of color. It means that we address and we use language that celebrates and restores the humanity of people of color. It means that we call out curriculum as examples of whiteness and white supremacy. And so that requires, um, that requires a transformation and a change of teachers themselves that acknowledge their own bias. It requires that, that we create new kinds of relationships in our schools with teachers to have courageous conversations about race. And it means that districts need to create the space and the opportunities to invest in, um, in anti-racist learning uh, groups 
among teachers so that they can share best practices, but also talk about where they struggle around trying to um, move an anti-racist agenda in their schools and in their classrooms. So what we've kind of landed on in this kind of defining, I, I'm also hearing you all point to the, the things that we need in order to build more racially just spaces. So as you were talking about, Sean, the kind of combination of curriculum and in-class kind of moments and centering, I'm also hearing you all talk about kind of the centrality of relationships and these larger kind of policy issues. So Kyla, I want to kind of come to you in part because of your perspective at the kind of larger policy issues what do you think it would take at policy um, district level to really support racial justice in the classroom? Well, one, I think it just, it takes courage um, because you're stepping into, I love that term, the racial wilderness um, and really helping a system, which is at the end of the day, it's made up of people, um, you know, doing their jobs every day um, to step and to try to step into a situation where they can't necessarily see how things can look differently, but know that the current situation isn't working. So I think that this notion of courage and this, I've had so many conversations, um, you know, with superintendents in particular in this moment. Um, and it means, and I use that word learner, um, because just because that may be your stance as an individual, you represent a system. So ultimately, you're representing 30,000, 50,000, 60,000 students, 2,000, 3,000 employees that are at fundamentally different levels on this journey in terms of this understanding. Um, so crafting the policy is one critically important step. Um, but the next piece is, you know, what does it mean to create those spaces and places to build people's understanding of actually how to do this work on an everyday basis, whether it's in a classroom, right? Whether it's a principal and it's your responsibility to be thinking about those conditions for all of the folks at the school, whether you're over the attendance, right? Whether you're over data throughout the system. Um, so that's the work. So it's the policy, but I say courage because you're gonna make mistakes. I say courage because when you get into these conversations, people are going to get angry, right? You're going to have people, particularly when you start trying to bring community, staff, you know, administrators, it's going to get ugly, right? People are going to come from their lived experience and truth. Um, and so it's back to how are you supporting people to stay in those spaces? Um, it's a mistake to think just because you have one or four leaders that all of a sudden you're going to transform the district. It's ordinary people every day making extraordinary change. So as a system leader, how are you really supporting folks to stand in the discomfort? Because that's where it is in the wilderness. There's a lot of things that people need to say, parents, you know, community, the teacher who may say, you keep telling me I need to change. I don't know how. I need more skill right? There's still spaces where people are silent. And that's where we are now. And that's there's skill building still for systems leaders to figure out how do you accelerate creating those spaces where the truth is out there to then say, we both want to get to the same end. We may have different dis you know, disagreements or ways of looking at it. You know, what are those first steps? That courageousness that you're speaking about is... Um... 
so needed. And, and it's also this opportunity for us to kind of pause and maybe pay attention to the courageousness of parents in this moment, of staff in this moment, of teachers in this moment, of educational leaders in this moment, because it's taking a whole lot of courage as we try to think about surviving in this, um, paying attention and bearing witness to our own grief in this moment, and how to kind of move move forward. So again, we're moving back and forth between these spaces of policies, but policies that you're saying are made by people. Natalie, you started to kind of think about and actually give uh, examples of policies where humanity was really invoked. So, you know, a policy around a late policy that was actually missing the humanity of the moment. So I'm also curious as we think about what skill building, like Kyla just referenced, or, or what opportunity we have to move from trauma to transformation in terms of policy and things. What are you seeing or what do you think is really needed? Because you've been in these places as educator in classrooms, educating college folks, and really thinking about what's needed. What do you think is, again, needed in this moment to move us toward racial just classrooms? Um, yeah, so, you know, I'm not a policy expert, um, but I've, I've worked under many policies. Um, and I think that what actually um, kind of dovetails nicely with both what Sean and Kyla were saying is that, um, you know, in addition to courage, I think we need trust. And there was a moment um, when I was a teacher in Oakland Unified, when we had the, the small schools movement and it required a lot of trust and was to trust teachers, right. To be experts and to have some autonomy in their classrooms and to have school sites to have autonomy over their curriculum. And, um, I think that part of, you know, policy that comes to us from places very far away, whether it's policy on, um, you know, academic standards, for example, um, testing, state testing, that I feel interrupts with the idea of meeting students as human beings, right? And that we can trust our principals and our teachers and our school sites to um, differentiate for their community and for their classroom in a way that standardized curriculum just can't do. Um, there was another point that you asked me of, oh, I missed it. No, you're you're right there. I mean, you're talking, I think, so much again about kind of like trust, and we're we're really having this conversation to both articulate what's needed, um, and so that I'm hearing you really speak about we've got to build up on on trust, and what that makes me kind of think about is the way as we're talking about race and racism, that that what racism has done is broken down that trust. What white supremacy has done is really broken down that trust. Oh, I think, well, so it came to me actually something that Sean was saying about the way that, um, you know, curriculum needs to change and centering and restoring the voices of people of color um, will help us do this. And um, that's where elementary ethnic studies comes in. And just to be very clear, our, our elementary ethnic studies project is the brainchild of Dr. Wanda Watson. I was very lucky to have met her and be invited into this. But, um, you know, we work with uh, teachers who work with little ones, TK all the way to sixth grade on how to implement ethnic studies curriculum. Um, but for some of those students, or sorry, for some of those teachers, um, they have to do that secretly in their classroom because there are policies that tell them that you, you need to teach in this very particular way to every single student in this entire state, right, or this entire nation. And for me, I feel like that's really, um, you know, the more we've started implementing that sort of policy, um, the less we trusted teachers to actually be skilled at doing their jobs, you know, so um, I think it's, it's, it's courage, it's trust, it's, it's centering the voices of people of color. And that all will inform, ideally, the, the folks who then do write the policies, which are unfortunately not me. Well, you and Allison? Both, 
can, can I just build off of, of Kyla and, and, and Natalie on this question about the role of policy and building anti-racist classrooms in schools? So, you know, my experience tells me that, that, that policy is necessary, but grossly insufficient. And that's because policy allows us to change the practices of justice, right? Like, you know, redu- reduction of suspensions of black and brown students, which is important, or the expulsion of black and brown students or getting, um, you know, policies to have safer schools when we don't have, when we remove police and create safety officers. Those policies are necessary, but they're grossly insufficient. My experience is that, and the research suggests that without the the transformation of people's values and the exploration of bias and the, and the, and the leaning into of, of, of relationships it means that you can have policies that are directed at racial justice, but have people in these systems that still don't love black and brown babies. And those things don't go together. And so along with policy, you have to create the spaces, as, as, as Natalie and, and Kyla have already talked about, you have to create the spaces for people to hold hands and move through the racial wilderness together. And that means when you walk into the woods, that's scary sometimes. When you walk into the woods, there are things that you're not familiar with. When you walk into the wilderness, there are things that you're going to fall into. But hopefully together you walk out on the other side. And so this is what uh, creating an anti-racist classroom in school is about leaning in, walking through that, that racial wilderness. It's a journey, not, a, not always simply a policy solution. And again, policy is necessary but it's, it's grossly insufficient. Both of these uh, processes, policies, have to be wedded to people's values and transformation of, of culture in these systems. You, you talk about this piece that I think so resonates with all of us, this, this um, racial wilderness, right? And it's a racial wilderness that many of us in our lived experiences have been trying to navigate for years um, and some places that you all have been really successful in navigating. But I also want to kind of pause and say, like, it's the racial wilderness. We're in the woods or in the forest and there's a fog. And that fog is the pandemic. It is this added factor that the things that we typically use, our our body language in classrooms, our, our hugging and loving of our children, you know, the proximity that we have is altered. So, Sean, I want to come back to you because of this perspective that you have. What do you think the pandemic has done or complicated in this moment uh, of trying to move towards racial justice. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's transformed everything, right? I think, um, I think right now uh, there's a lot of conversations happening um, among school leaders, um, superintendents and, and school principals and administrators that are a necessary conversation, which is about how do we, how do we reopen schools? How do we make our schools safe again? And, and, and that's an important conversation, right? These are, these are highly... Uh, technical and strategic conversations about creating safety so that our young people and our teaching workforce can be can have a sense of safety and and as we reintroduce in physical instruction but i think i think that's there's another part of that conversation that we that we haven't had enough conversation about and that other part of that conversation as you as you said Allison about the fog of covid is the psycho spiritual consequence of trauma that and stress that young people and uh, parents and teachers are experiencing 
we know that from the research that there's a higher level and higher numbers of young people who are experiencing depression from, from this sense of isolation. We know that there's high levels of, of stress that's happening among teachers right now um, because of the uncertainty about going into schools or being forced to go back into a school district and not feeling safe. So there's all of this social emotional trauma that is occurring uh, I'm sorry, but with, with parents as well. Like I'm hearing from parents, like I got to work, but then I got to go fix my kids lunch and my kids are fighting. Right. So this, so I don't know what to do because the, the school doesn't, t- the, I'm not a teacher. What I do is taxes. This is what I'm hearing. Right. And so the level of stress um, from both to, from teachers, from parents and from the students is largely unaddressed. And so I think that we have to think about creating a community of conversations about how we go through this wilderness together and acknowledge and acknowledge the ways in which students and, and parents and teachers are experiencing this wilderness together. It is not only a technical, mechanistic, and systemic solution, right? There's psycho-spiritual Uh, emotional conversations that need to go along with the strategic conversations that I, that I don't see happening as much. I just want to say you're speaking my language as a, as a child therapist. I have never been called upon to serve in the ways that I'm doing right now in terms of seeing how many children are really struggling and really struggling in some really complicated and painful ways, increased suicidality, isolation, all of those kinds of issues that we have those names for, but it's also this kind of spiritual heartfelt kind of separation. Um, as you were also speaking, I, I saw a number of us nodding and, and feeling that tension in our multiple roles as parents, as caregivers. And so I'm curious about what resonated, Kyla, about what Sean was saying in, in your position about what's needed is also attending to our hearts in this moment. What, what's coming to you? Yeah, I would say, um, one, just by coming back to that skill set around relationships, um, because a lot of times in schools or in systems, you have to have that trust for people to communicate the pain, you know, the despair or the real needs, right? If that relationship isn't there, you may see the suffering, but you may not necessarily know what it is that you need to do um, about that or the support that's needed. Um, And so, again, beyond, we started off just talking about the classroom, but the need to have those skills run up and down the system. Um, And so really thinking about from a mental health standpoint, we've heard from lots of high school students, that's great, but if I don't have a relationship with that person, that service is actually not going to be helpful. So the need to continue to listen so that when there's a need for the resource, our, our students have told us over and over again, There's a need for increased mental health support, but also there is that need for the adults working with the students to sort through not only what's going on in their own um, personal lives. um, You know, I have had to hold some of my staff as either members of their families have died. Um, So, you know, just recognizing people are holding their professional needs of the students and families they're serving while simultaneously dealing with how this this pandemic is affecting them personally, right? And how leaders, how you have to be mindful and really have that lens of of, of self-care to balance both. But that need um, runs up and down. Um, And then also thinking about the supports for parents who may not have the access 
to uh, certain services, or it's just fundamentally, I mean, many districts across the nation, um, schools are becoming bigger social services than they've ever needed to be before. So, you know, from the food and the devices, but issues around cash assistance. Um, and we're seeing that more and more in high schools of kids who simply have to work to make sure there's food on the table. So again, back to relationship, is that foundation there for you to hear that, for the student to feel comfortable saying straight up, this is what is going on. Even when we come back, I still have to work. That's important information to be able to say, okay, as a school or as a system, what does that mean in terms of how we need to pivot to think about making sure that kid still has the opportunity to learn, right? If from eight to three, they now need to work. Um, and so again, I think constantly thinking about the evolution um, of a system. I, For me, the pandemic, I get worried when folks talk about all these new things that are happening. I feel like the pandemic really just pulled back the curtain for everybody um, who may not be as attached to education to just see really clearly, oh, this is why we have federal policies to make sure kids eat in schools. You see the, the poverty and the hunger, but that was always there. It's magnified, but those trends were already always there. The fact that it hits Black community and the Latinx community and the immigrant communities hardest Go back to just simple, you know, monolithic data, whether you want to look at attendance, suspension, expulsion, who's getting into college, reading all these things and the way they're playing out in the pandemic were here before. And so, again, back to the relationships and the courage, um, you know, how are we going to evolve as a, as a system? And I've been talking a lot about just the need for adaptive leadership. Because the challenge with systems is we're bureaucracies. So we're built to maintain the status quo. But what we have to do now is disrupt and pivot. And fundamentally in a large system, it, that's challenge, right? And so that's where the learning has to happen. How do you fundamentally evolve in terms of how you're organized, right, to meet some of these um, not new challenges, but I'll just say more concentrated um, challenges that we're seeing in this present moment. I, I so appreciate the the holding on to that. There's so much of this that isn't new, right? There's so much of the kind of struggles and the burdens that it isn't new. And also this place around like attending to the psychosocial, spiritual heart places has always been a dilemma and hard in many different ways. You're also pointing to that this is potentially a moment to, um, to disrupt or continue that kind of disruption. And Natalie, I'm, I'm turning to you in part as a person that's been part of disrupting the systems or entering into the systems to kind of bring in this kind of central focus on, on um, folks of color through ethnic studies. I'm curious as to what you see as, again, an opportunity in this moment. While I'll make the caveat that this piece around the opportunities and the courage that it takes has to be rooted in what Sean is saying, which is that we're tired <laughs> and we're bearing burdens that are um, extraordinary and heavy. Um, and I hope that we're going to get to a place about also being able to recognize a resilience that we also have had for a long time. But, but Natalie, let me come to you and just, again, think about like, what are the opportunities that, that we have to kind of disrupt things in this particular moment? Um, yeah, I mean, I think this provides a great opportunity for, you know, folks who, who I, I you know, I, I always like to use this 
metaphor. You know, the folks who have uh, Black Lives Matter signs in the yards to actually do something um, to show that you mean that, right? So there's an opportunity for folks to actually be in community. And now I'm not talking about teachers and, and, and students, um, but, but community, right? Family. So um, bring, tying this all back in together, we also know from the data that the families who are ready to send their kids back are predominantly white and upper middle class. And the data also shows us, and the Pew Center just um, you know, published this research, but we have the, you know, everybody's got this research locally, federally. Um, we have the simultaneous research that shows us that those are the same communities that have been largely unaffected by COVID, right? By, by the actual health effects. Everybody's been inconvenienced by it, right? But the communities that have been least affected are the communities who are really behind this push to put people back into classrooms. And, um, you know, who, who will, and I say this now from my, you know, parent perspective, being in parent meetings, who will say things like, well, there's always a risk, right? Life, life doesn't come without risks. And for me, I, you know, I put that back on them and ask, well, who exactly are you risking? If the data shows that it's probably not you and your family, right? That means we're risking the teacher, that means we're risking the kids who are immunocompromised. We're, we're risking the kids of color. We're risking the, the families whose kids uh, or whose parents work in, um, you know, in food service, for example. Right. So so we're willing to take a risk. But the opportunity for us here then is to ask, what does that risk really mean? Right. It's not that I'm risking sending my kid because I think my kid's safe. It's that I'm risking it because I know that the risk will fall on other communities. And that's hard, right? Like that's that ugly part of walking to, that's the ugliness Kyla talked about in the walking through the fog, right? Um, that we have to really be honest with ourselves that, you know, when we are pushing for things that would benefit our children or our families individually, there's always fallout, right? And, um, and something that you mentioned, and maybe I'll be, I'm jumping ahead in the conversation is that um, a lot of the conversation around why we need to reopen schools has been because it's going to benefit black and brown kids who need it. But but that claim is being made by predominantly white families. Right. And that's that's missionary history right there. Right. Like that's that's centuries deep in school systems. So um, so when you said opportunity, my, my first response was like, well, what have been my opportunities? But I actually want to actually put that back on folks. Right. Who have the most privilege in this situation right now and in general and say, you know, the opportunities there to really figure out um, how you're benefiting from these systems that harm others and how your actions could start to dismantle these systems and could start to actually um, serve the folks who've been the most oppressed by these systems. So for example, if, if I wanna make a push to reopen a school in a large school district that has a variety of you know, income levels and et cetera, like, like Oakland, for example, I might really want my kids out of my house. I, I do, <laughs> you know? Um, but I might instead fight for, how can we first prioritize um, the kids who are already academically behind? How can we prioritize the, the students who are experiencing homelessness? How can I use my voice, my power to say, um, before my child gets sent back, can we talk about creating small learning groups outdoors safely for you know, students who have learning differences? Like, can, we, can we help those who need I don't want to use the terms of like who need more help because even that sort of, you know, really borders on saviorism, which is like the thorn in my side. Um, but, you know, it's like, how, how can we serve the folks who actually um, will be best served by reopening now? Because as much as, you know, it's, it's hard work. Like my son 
has ADHD. He does not understand how to learn from a, a, a screen. You know, it's there's been crying. There have been both of us on the floor crying as recently as yesterday, 10 minutes before I taught a college class. Um, and also, um, he will be okay. Right. And so I have to recognize that as my privilege as being an educator, as understanding how school works, as understanding, you know, like he will be okay. Um, and he doesn't need to be the first one back in the door, even though that will bring all of our lives back to normalcy. So, so that's the opportunity is really to, when we talk about relationships, I'm thinking now bigger relationships, right? Like how are we in a large community relationship with folks who we don't even know? Mm-hmm. And to think so much about, like, I also hear the opportunity is there is an opportunity to listening, an opportunity to, to really listen. What do people want and why does it vary and why does it differ? I also hear you articulating the opportunities for us to sit into what privilege means and feels like without having that be some sort of determination about whether or not we're bad people or not. Because um, we go quickly to that kind of place of like, that must mean I'm bad as opposed to that must mean I'm complicated. That must mean I'm really human. And Sean, I want to turn to you as you're hearing and and as you're seeing this kind of opportunity as well. And I'm framing it again, perhaps on opportunity in part as an avoidance of the trauma that is there. But I want to kind of come back to you in part because I do think that, um, especially in the work that you've had, you've been able to have us not um, turn away from our trauma, but actually really pay attention to it and actually think about what spaces we have to flourish, what spaces we have to kind of um, as Natalie and as Kyla are kind of attending to, to really do the deep, hard, courageous work to move forward. And I'm wondering what's coming, standing out to you in this particular moment from this conversation. Yeah, no, great question. I, I was doing, we're doing some work. Um, it's interesting work in a school district. I won't name the school district. That's really trying to navigate through um, how to support, you know, their teachers uh, with, with doing instruction that is, that is informed by racial justice and racial equity. And, and one of the things that we, I heard from these teachers is that one of the things we asked them to do is just take the first 10 minutes of every time you're in front of the, you're, you're in your screen to do a social emotional check-in with your students. Like don't jump into the, the curriculum or whatever, but just ask how they're doing. Everybody has to go around and sort of say, I'm, here's how I'm feeling. Here's how, what's going on with me. And the teacher did the same thing, right? She has to do the same thing. And so one of the things she said is that when she does that, she learned that that is her her favorite part of the class as well as her students' favorite part of the class. Because what happens is, is that when we use the, when we sort of focus on learning loss, what we do is we, we create, we pretend like, or we don't consider all of the learning that is occurring about ourselves that are in a, in the, this is the first time we've been in a pandemic. How are we not learning anything? And so one of the things she said is that, that when they talk about how they're feeling, talk about what's going on, they, 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 they talk about loss because some of the students have lost, uh, you know, grandparents. Um, it goes into the lesson. She says that that is the fit What she's finding out is that the students are so present during that time of their lesson. And that's because it matters to them because it's real life when they see their friend crying on Zoom because they lost a grandparent or they laugh when they see their teacher 
and their their kids are running around fighting because they know they do that at the same time. It, there's a humanizing element, right? My point is, is that the possibilities is for us to understand, well, what is the, what are we, what is the possibility of what we're learning now? And how do we use what we're learning as a, as a scaffolding into other kinds of instruction? And certainly there's, there's inequality in learning loss um, and, and we have to pay attention to that. But we also have to focus on, well, what's the possibility right now? And what are we learning? And how can we have new conversations about what it means to learn? Um, there's so much social, emotional um, uh, literacy that's happening right now uh, that, that I, I think it's really important that, that schools uh, uh, pay a lot of attention to, not just with students, but the social, emotional literacy with uh, the teaching and, and the adult workforce in these schools as well. Mm-hmm. That makes me think so much about kind of a question that was emerging for me, which is many of the kids that I serve or the families that I'm in relationship with have kind of framed this year as almost a lost year. And I hear you pointing to the places that there are some possibilities, right? And some potentialities about what we could be paying attention to about what is being learned. You know, I'll give you an example. Like my 10-year-old put together my slide deck for my presentation and she didn't know that before. And I'm not saying that, that that makes everything kind of okay, but she is coming up with some a skill. I also am in relationship with a child who said, this is my best life ever. I'm getting straight A's because I'm not getting kicked out of class like I used to. And this is a little black boy. So he's actually feeling that there's a way that he's not getting called out of classroom for being too loud because he's muted <laughs> and he's not getting called out and not having the kind of disproportionate kind of impact that he had. And he's being allowed to draw and engage and, and get those kind of straight A's in a different way. So we can do both. I think we can pay attention to the trauma and the difficulties. And I'm really curious as to Kyla, what are you seeing as the possibilities or perhaps the things that we would like to keep from this moment? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, And I love the pivot from the learning loss to more just advancing learning Um, because there there's tons of pieces, whether it's really kids academically teaching themselves, um, but even the skills of resilience, right? If somebody has lost somebody, that sense of grief, how you deal with stress, Um, You know, I often say almost every kid from five to 17 is uh, learning to be a college student because of the level of time management and calendaring, right? When you think of when do I have minute live instruction, non-live instruction, got to get on this time, the amount of technology learning, um, all of those things I don't think we'll, we'll really be able to analyze, you know, at an aggregate level until we're back in school, right, which will definitely look different um, moving forward. But I think there definitely, absolutely, there's loss in terms of relationships, um, our traditional and conventional ways of thinking about instruction. But it also is the question of, you know, learning is socio-emotional. It it has to do, and it can happen in any form. So some places where we're seeing, okay, this has happened out of crisis, but how do we hold on to it? is a lot of the learning that's happening happening in our small hubs. Initially, when we did it, we did it with community-based organizations for our um, unhoused and foster youth because we were seen in high school. That's where we were seeing like the lowest amount of kids just showing up to school. 
Um, and a lot of what we heard, even after we got devices, was devices great, but given my housing situation, your assumption is I have a quiet place to work. Your assumption is that I live in a place where I'm going to have just solid Wi-Fi. I don't. That's really the support that I need. Um, and so through the crisis and just folks coming together, okay, we can help you with this until you're ready with your facilities. We've been in partnership with an organization, Oakland Reach. They've done virtual hubs for many of our Black families focusing on literacy, K-12. Our paraprofessionals have actually been providing some of the literacy, and they've actually been really helping parents understand, um, again, even as an educated parent, doesn't necessarily mean you understand sixth grade standards, fifth grade standards. And so providing that support, there are lessons there in terms of seeing parents engaged and particularly Black parents engaged in ways of never before, really being able to see from parents, I don't want my kid to just have literacy all day. How can we build the enrichment um, within some of these hubs as well? So the hope is that things that we're doing in this moment back to the disruption and evolution um, is as a way of saying the K5, 6, 8, 9, 12 traditional model has never worked for every kid. And so again, sometimes large bureaucracies, it takes a crisis to push, to really be able to say, yeah, we may not know how to do this at scale, right? But let's let's try some things out um, and let's learn to figure out some of these things that, that we want to stay um, around after we're out of this. I keep saying it's not a moment, but this is an era that we're in. And I think kind of back to the notion of the school as the community, um, where we're seeing the best chance is, you know, it is a fallacy to think that a group of teachers and principals alone are going to be able to deal with all of this. Even if you think about a child who's been accelerated, you may have a kid now, they're two to three grade levels ahead, as well as a kid who may be two to three, three grade levels below. Even a rock star teacher is going to need support to really think about the individual needs of those students, to hold those students and those families. Um, and so again, in these models, we're seeing paraprofessionals step up in ways that maybe we didn't envision we should be leaning on more, other organizations and community. And so how can we really design some more models so we have more of that going on um, as, we, as we transition back? A lot of that sounds like the individualization and the real focus that you spoke about, Natalie, in your prior kind of experiences. And I'm wondering, you know, Natalie, are there things that you would think about keeping from this experience? As much as we can articulate and want to hold on to how difficult, is there anything that's kind of coming to mind from your perspective about the things that we, we probably should keep, like like Kyla's mentioning? Yeah, I mean, I, I love hearing what she's saying, you know, and I think that those are some of the things that I thought about as well. Um, keeping that parent involvement, not not just parent involvement, but, but the agency that parents are allowed to have in their kids' education um, is really important. We can learn a lot from that. And also... Um, you know, this multi-age learning that's happening. If you have more than one sibling in your house, right? Like that's, that's natural, right? Like the, the, like she's saying at the K through five or, you know, the six through eight, like that's just invented. Um, but, you know, watching my seven-year-old teaching my four-year-old how to build, you know, like a Lego entire town while I'm, you know, out of the room for just a moment. Um, that's good learning. Right. And, and that, that project-based learning and that multi-age learning and that, um, you know, like parents there as, as experts, 
on their own children and on what's important to their children. That's the kind of thing like we really, um, that's sort of the gift of, of the pandemic shrinking our worlds and forcing us to all have to slow down um, is, is showing us that again as, as right. Like the things that have sort of risen to the top as what really counts. And when you are living in pandemic world, you have no choice but to see the things that are really valuable and that really count to you. So I would love to see that. And I think, you know, again, from my perspective at the college level, um, a lot of the accommodations that we have made and, and the tech that we have purchased and um, all of that is that those are things that students with learning differences could have used for years. Right. Um, especially, you know, now knowing that we can do all of these things via Zoom, you know, like students, students who have, um, you know, anxiety or students who have um, immuno, you know, compromised immune systems, like things like that. Like um, we, we've now shown them, right, that we can do these things. And um, there, there's a lot of benefit to what we can continue to bring into the classroom. I, I have a, a friend who's, whose child's in, in, in my son's class. And, you know, she was talking about one of the apps. Um, it's a reading app that they use and how um, for him as a child on the spectrum, like how it's made so much sense for him. And it's really, um, it, it, it just, you know, it's fun. My kids are obsessed with it, but it's reading. It's, 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 it's reading, it's comprehension and it, and it figures out your reading level and it's, and it's paced at your pace. And for a child like that, this has been such a huge gift for him. And, you know, her, we were, we had a conversation last night with parents and she was saying, you know, like I, when we go back, I need you to bring that back into the classroom because that really works and that's going to continue to work. And that's also going to help, you know, ease the transition. So there, there's so much that we can learn and it would be such a, a disappointment and disservice if we all just kind of went back to, you know, the same old thing that existed before. You know, I really hear that as the conversation that, Sean, you seeded around the, the notion of kind of our agency and the agency and the potential that's there. I, I should pause here just to say I could spend another nine hours just asking you all my questions, but we do have some questions that are coming in from the audience. And so we have a couple of live questions. And the first one that we're going to do here is from Tiffany Jones. And Tiffany is an educator from Mare Island Health and Fitness Academy. So we should be able to see her in just a second. Or if not, I have other questions um, as well. So I'll just wait a second to see if that's kind of coming up. But otherwise, I have gotten a bunch of other questions kind of here um, via the chat as well. So um, here's a question from Roberto, which is at the K through eight school level, how effective can academic curriculum for students be without the active engagement and buy-in from parents? Sean, maybe we'll start with you on that one. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... You know, we, we, we always talk about parent involvement and the importance of parents. Um, but I think given in this particular context we're in, it has centralized and made even more urgent the role that parents play in their children's learning. Um, and so I think that as we, you know, one of the questions I'm going to try to answer the, the person's question in response to the last conversation, and that is, you know, as we as we transition out of trauma to transformation, what are we going to leave behind in the old world, and what are we going to bring with us in the new one? And I think the question that the the the, the question that that's before us right now is, 
how do we actually think about making parents and allowing parents uh, to be more central in their children's learning? Does that mean that we have to really reimagine this, the workday? Does that mean that we have to think about different policies that give parents much more latitude to show up in the in, in, in different ways for their for their for their children's learning? Does that mean that we need different kinds of legislation to allow for that workday to be possible? How do we actually? So there's so much there's so much that I think we should be bringing into the new world uh, that are as a result of what we've just experienced. And and so in response to the the the, the question is absolutely uh, we need to figure out um, academic learning is a, is oftentimes siloed from engagement with the real world and engagement with 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 um, with uh, with with parents, and so I think that the extent to which schools can figure out how to do that um, and work in an ecosystem of learning, I think that that would is really would contribute to some really transformative learning for young people. There was a look upon mine and some of the other faces around thinking about like, what if legislation was there to support us to parent differently. That, that feels like both a revelation and also it's what's needed in terms of not having this conversation siloed within only educational leaders, only this, but to really think about, Natalie, something that you referred to, which is, you know, the idea broadly of community. So not just the community within the school, but what would it be like if we organized and took some of these lessons that you're all kind of talking about into the future? So I'm getting a little ping that we actually do have that video available. So I'm gonna pause right now and hope it'll work again, that we do have a live question that uh, should be able to come right on up. Hello, my name is Tiffany Jones and I serve as the academic support provider here at Mare Island Health and Fitness Academy located in Vallejo, California. And my question is, how can we ensure equitable implementation of the multi-tier systems of support in each of our schools? So Kyla, I'm gonna to turn to you with this one first, perhaps because you have a familiarity with the language that she's talking about here. Yes. Yeah, so in, in EduSpeak, uh, it's often referred to as MTSS, which is just really a frame of some of the foundational supports students need both to accelerate and thrive academically, socio-emotionally. And then what's often referred to as kind of like that second tier and, and third tier. I think in regular words, it's kind of a framework around the village that's needed for every student to be successful. And I think whenever we talk about implementation, um, it comes back to how you're caring for and investing in the folks um, that are going to be in front of students and in the school community. Um, and really doing your best to understand um, what are what are the supports that they need in terms of whether it's the content, um, again, how to support and work with our students and families, and oftentimes the extra supports that are needed. Um, and so, you know, if your implementation is five schools, 10 schools, you know, 100 schools, how are you creating back to those meaningful spaces and nurturing for constant learning um, and making sure that people are getting what they need to be able to carry out um, those responsibilities and, and being able to, again, personalize that learning experience um, as best as possible. Um, and thinking about just from what we were talking about before, um, I, I think sometimes the, the level of quick um, adaption and the learning for teachers in this moment has been very invisible. Um, 
even in my busy schedule, I try to pop into virtual um, virtually to my schools. Um, so you can actually see the level of adaptability and learning and creativity that is going on to actually create some sort of community um, for classrooms and even schools. So, you know, from virtual assemblies to people really first, you can see, okay, I just have to learn how Zoom works versus a teacher who's come into this and they already felt comfortable with technology. Um, and they're able to really think about the kid who, okay, if I can teach them how to use the dictation feature, they can be listening to the content so then they can be focusing on comprehension. Um, and so again, back to implementation, I'm really thinking about assuming positive intent. People are doing this work because they want to, um, but how we're providing them the support to continue to, to improve their ability um, to deliver. Um, and when we're not, oftentimes in systems, everything is urgent. So it's like, great, we gave you that year of learning. Now you're an expert. And then you start to see the breakdown in implementation, how we're continuing to care for through investment um, in our educators to be able to provide the best service possible. Yeah, that the idea of kind of moving so quickly without the ability to do some of what we're doing here, which is to kind of pause and think about what can be kept, what should be thrown away. You know, how do we kind of support that? We've got another um, question and Natalie, I'm going to cue you up for this question. It's a video that we're going to have, which is um, from Melissa Schwinn Mallory. She's a trustee at New Haven uh, Unified School District. So maybe we'll start with your perspective after you get a chance to see it. Hello, my name is Melissa Swen Mallory and I am a school board trustee here in New Haven Unified School District in Union City and South Hayward, California. My question is what can we do beyond anti-racism training and ethnic studies curriculum to ensure that all of our students are receiving an equitable and anti-racist education? <laughs> oh, Allison knows me. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think, you know, my, again, my initial response was, you know, well, why don't we start with that? Right. Uh, we don't have that in most of our schools. We certainly don't. Um, we haven't centered ethnic studies. Um, gosh, even at the college level, right. As a country, we're still fighting for it. Ethnic studies programs are always first on the chopping block. Um, we're just now understanding that it makes sense for high schoolers. And I think, you know, there are districts who are now implementing it as a graduation requirement, um, but understanding it in pre-K through through eighth grade is still relatively unheard of, you know. So we still have a lot more work to do with those things and to do with. Um, I, I, it's it's strange for me to to even sort of conceptualize what do we do after anti-racism and ethnic studies because we've not even come close to beginning those things, you know. Um, but in addition to those things, I'll say that something that um, both Sean and Kyla's comments made me think about was just. Um, money, right? Capital. So in order to do those things, in order to, you know, have equitable distribution of the systems of support, in order to have parents, um, you know, be available for their kids, like we need, we need federal minimum wage, right? Like we need to overturn the silly tax laws in California that defunded our schools. We need to get rid of student loans, right? And we need to honestly, in school districts that have a vast, you know, range of, of income levels, like we need to address the PTAs, so that the, the millions that are raised in some schools are felt in all the schools in that city or that district. You know, there's a lot that really just comes down to money. 
So I'll, I'll throw that in because it seems to fit with the conversation. Um, but again, and as, as Sean said early on in the conversation, um, anti-racism, it's, you know, it's an ongoing action. It's, it's active, right? It's not a stance. It's not like I'm not a racist. It is a complete deconstruction of a system that was founded upon white supremacy and racism, which our school system was. This is just historical fact. And now, really, go ahead, Sean. No, and I was just going to say, just to just to build on on what Natalie was saying is 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 sometimes I think we get we 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 confuse anti racism. Is anti racism a means or an end? Mm-hmm. And if it is, and what I mean by that is, I think that sometimes we think and we talk about anti racism as an as an end. Um, if it's a means. What is it trying to end? And I think that what we're really saying is that anti-racism, an active, engaged, consistent, ongoing, urgent stance to dismantle white supremacy as a means, we need to remove that in order to create belonging. And and what we're really trying to create is a place or schools and institutions where people belong. And and sometimes, and we need anti-racist stance in order to create that. But sometimes we 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 focus so much on the means and and not as not as much on the end, which is what are we really trying to create in our society? What are we really trying to reimagine in our society? If we are to create a society of belonging and inclusion, it can only happen through schools. And schools have to be the center point at which we recondition the culture and the values of our young people so that they have a different view. Of, of how to create belonging in our society. So Natalie was, when she said like ethnic studies, it's, you know, we have a model and that we really have to uh, really expand uh, and create opportunities for ethnic studies to, 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 to be more present. Yeah. And just may I say, is there time for me to say a couple of things? Definitely. And just add it to that. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a stance, it's a, it's a being, it's a mindset in terms of everything. So even back to money, um, <laughs> You know, I think as as a school district, like if this is central to your work, this these are some of our current conversations and struggles. How is that articulated in your strategic vision for your district versus there's this thing I'm doing, right, um, to disrupt the system? Because if it's fundamental to what you're saying you're about, um, that actually gives you a, a firm table um, when you're thinking about public and private partnerships. And while I am hopeful at one day, public schools will be funded where they should be. In the meantime, we know in cities like Oakland, there's hella money. And so that's where the public-private partnerships come in. But is the vision that you're about really articulated in the way where this is the work and not just a side um, thing that you're doing? Um, to be able to then bring in, because it is resource heavy, back to people make a system. And we're trying to fight 400 years of how we've been associated, right? That takes investment for people to have the courage. And then even once you have the courage, you're going to make mistakes once you do it. You're going to need opportunities to reflect, learn new tools. And that takes long time. That's not just the one training. That's not just the semester training. It's ongoing from your curriculum adoption process. Are, is there inherently things built in where it's going to help you not get to the right curriculum that you need? 
because it's ethnic studies, but then it also comes down to science, math, all Mm -hmm. of the curriculum. So this is, you know, again, we are in the wilderness. And so people need the support, right, to be able to, to move through. And there is, I appreciate Natalie bringing that up because we have to be real about it. If it's important, we've got to prioritize it. Yeah, I appreciate that you refer to it as hella money because that's very, but it is, it's true, right? And, and, and also, you know, ethics studies is science and it is math and um, yeah, and it, it's the system and that's the thing, you know, we, the system was built to do a very particular thing. And here's where I, you know, turn into my, you know, kind of like historian self, which is that when we trace the history of schools, we see that they were created to Americanize um, European immigrants who weren't quite white yet. Right. And they were seen as ways to colonize the lands that we would then claim as part of the U.S. And they were seen as ways to um, you know, Americanize recently um, emancipated enslaved Africans. Right. So the like, schools were used as a tool. They were used very intentionally to do a thing. So in, in the same way that we post-racial America didn't happen with Barack Obama. Right. Post-anti-racism. That might be too many parts of speech, you know, won't happen because it, it has to right? It has to be constantly living as part of this structure that currently is living sort of like the opposite, the opposite goal right now in most places. There's this, again, this way that you all are speaking to the the history and really appreciating the texture of the trauma and also speaking to the opportunities therein. I am also hearing so clearly that you are all articulating that, you know, anti-racist is not what we don't declare ourselves after anti-racist and get like a woke sticker and then they're done. This is not some sort of landing point, but a really deeply embedded process that will take time, courage, um, and grace. It's going to take all of that from us, which you've spoken about. We're, we're actually nearing the end of our time. And there's a particular question that we always ask in this space. So it's a tradition for us here to um, ask all of our speakers the following question which is, what is your 60-second idea to change the world? And I'm going to make the caveat, there's no quick fix, and you've all spoken about that, but just if you could speak to what's on your hearts and minds about, again, what is your idea right now to change the, the world in this way? Sean, can you start us off? Wow, you put me on front, huh? I did, put you last. <laughs> um, my idea to change the world is that I deeply believe that if you are if you are a human being on this earth, uh, that in some ways you've experienced some form of trauma that's made it difficult for you to love, embrace, and see the possibility in every human being. So my big idea is that everybody uh, shouldn't be engaged in some form of healing, some form of restoring our humanity, some form of restoring the, the ability for us to see the humanity and compassion with each other. I don't believe any system can change. I don't believe any government can change. I don't believe any school can change without some fundamental shift in how we see and be with each other. So my 60 second pitch would be to saturate every human being on this earth with opportunities to restore their own sense of well-being, their own sense of compassion, their own ability to connect with the humanity that that's around them. Mm, thank you for that offering. Natalie? What what would you say? I I would like to take that answer. <laughs> um, but you know, that I thank you so much, Sean. That is really beautiful and really sitting with me. Um, my 
I have a quote that I wrote on my wall about a month ago. It's not on the wall, but it's on the wall. Um, and it just says, be the person you want your child to become. And that's been kind of my reminder as a parent, as a working parent, teaching my children at home during this time. Um, but it's for me, I think it's so little. For me, that means, you know, be the person who doesn't yell when you're frustrated, right? Or be the person who knows when it's time to take a break or be the person who just, you know, like who, who explains to your children that, you know, we've been home for a full year because we're caring for people out in the world who we'll, who we'll never meet, right? We don't have a relationship or obligation to them other than like they're human beings who we want to keep alive. So um, that's that's my little piece and if you if you don't have a child, I'm sure you can think of it more generally as you know be be the be the person who you we want our next generation to become. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Natalie. And and for Kyla, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, for me, um, two words: hope and faith. And finding those everyday rituals to restore hope and faith in yourself. Um, I think particularly now, there's so much that can make us stay in that state of pessimism and things are never going to change. And they're so massive. What could I possibly do? And that mindset to me eats away at creativity, eats away at imagination and possibility. Um, So that's something particularly with the challenges in in school districts, I try to do every day. Um, For me, it's meditation, it's prayer, it's walking, um, but really being mindful, even when the day before felt just like the hardest thing, what am I grateful for? What is good in the world? Um, You know, keeping your mind on there's so many awesome human beings that we just don't necessarily see that are leading from good. They want the world to be better. And sometimes that's just hard to see with everything. So those rituals to restore are hope and faith in yourself so that you can give it to others. Mm. You all have taken us through uh, such complexity and have all ultimately landed on this place of about our humanity, our ability and capacity to love each other and to be in community. Um, And I want to thank you personally um, for the work that you do, the advocacy and the witnessing and the loving of the children in our community. Um, As a parent within OUSD, I really appreciate this. But as a parent on this planet um, in particular, I really just want to thank you. Uh, I want to thank you, um, Dr. Kyla Johnson-Tramell, you, Dr. Sean Jinwright, and you, Dr. Natalie Kehalani-Bauer, for joining us all today at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club and Creating Citizens. Uh, A very special thanks goes out to the Golden State Warriors and the Generation Thrive for co-presenting today's uh, event. And if you would like to be in community with us and watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit thecommonwealthclub.org slash online. Um, And I'm Dr. Briscoe Smith, and it has been a real um, blessing and honor to be in community with you all. And thank you so much. Really, You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org.